2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. today we're gonna be in a way we're continuing on past discussions concerning the wheel um, also past discussions concerning uh, like rolling creatures uh, but we're gonna be getting more specifically into the the realm of the gear in this episode. now uh, I have to say I'm anytime we get into one of these discussions, I'm always reminded of uh, a few lines from 1971's The Omega Man, Uh, in part because uh, it's in in its own way, it's a a weirdly uh, interesting film. Uh, Also, I probably listened to um, a bit too much White Zombie back in high school uh, uh, because there's uh, some—or maybe it's a Rob Zombie song— that uh, that samples this movie, but there's this one wonderful line from Anthony Zerbe's uh, character. Uh, it says, "The creature of the wheel, the lord of the infernal
0: engines." Um, what is he talking about? The vampires, or is he talking about uh, about uh, Charlton Heston?
1: He's talking about old Chuck Heston. There, he's the really yeah, this, this man represents uh, the the wheel and the technology of the wheel and all the terrible things that were done with it.
0: Um, <laughs> But wait, I I recall the vampires using wheeled vehicles. Do they not? Don't they have like a, a sort of zombie mobile? Yeah, I'm not saying it makes
1: sense. I'm not saying okay. it's a fair criticism. I'm just saying <laughs> that Anthony uh, Zerba had a really cool voice. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, and when he said these lines, I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Don't know what
0: it means exactly, but it sounds pretty cool. You know, it would be a really good movie monster bug fight, and and both are Charlton Heston movies. If you pit the vampires from the Omega Man versus mm-hmm. the atom bomb cult from the Second Planet of the Apes movie, you know <laughs> they're they're pretty similar. I think pretty similar uh, uh, morbid humanoids, but but I would like to see them duke it out, and and Charlton Heston, I guess, can just watch this time. Yeah, what was that beneath the
1: Planet of the Apes? I always liked that, that one. Though, as one? far as but any eight movies that came after Planet of the Apes, uh, that one uh, that one always appealed to me. I'm not sure why. Uh,
0: I remember there's a part where they sing a hymn to the atom bomb. Mm-hmm. You remember yep. that? I, yep. They have just a big old atom bomb in there that they worship. Uh, I think it's like a minor key version of All Things Bright and Beautiful. Mm-hmm.
1: But it's interesting, all these things are connected because we're dealing with with a human technology and the idea of worshiping the technology, being bound to the technology, and and the wheel, and by virtue of the wheel, gears and machines being this thing that is particular to human beings, something that 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 we have created that's a part of our various civilizations. And I think it's interesting to think about humans as creatures of the wheel, in part because, of course, there have been plenty of cultures and civilizations where The wheel, at least in terms of of vehicles, has played no practical role. Perhaps it – you know, you had the wheel as a toy. Perhaps it was used as a spiritual aid or device that could serve as a metaphor – but then certainly by the time we get to the, you know, the age of roads and engines, humanity very visibly becomes a, a people of the wheel. Uh, but then, as we'll discuss in this episode a little bit, uh, you also get into this domain of, of wheels and gears, of, of wheels doing things that, that don't have, have anything directly to do with vehicles, but it's all about using the energy of the wheel to do other things. And yet, at the same time, it, this also makes me think of the field of biomimetics, uh, Biomechanics, of course, is when we we say, "Okay, I have an engineering problem. I need to turn to the realm of nature for a possible solution." Because I've only been working on this engineering problem for you know X amount of time, but evolution has been working uh, around similar engineering problems just for for millions of years. So uh, perhaps we can we can cheat off of nature in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, one one of the problems is that the, the wheel almost never comes up in nature itself. Gears almost never come up in nature. So, biomimetically, you're not going to turn to nature and say, oh, well, well, there's a there's a solution involving the wheel that I might use. Oh, let's look and see how this particular creature uses uh, rotary blades to fly, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I actually really enjoy thinking about this uh, in terms of comparing animal bodies to different types of machines, machine components, simple machines, uh, you know, the stuff you learn about in those first physics lessons when you're a kid. So, you know, you know the lever and the inclined plane and, the, and the, the pulley and the screw and all that. And I feel like when you do this exercise, there is one type of simple machine that absolutely dominates the landscape of biology, and that is the lever. Biology mm. is full of levers. I think you could make an argument that Almost all of the skeletal muscle in our bodies is designed by evolution for the operation of levers. Maybe there are some exceptions that aren't occurring to me, but uh, I would say if not all of them, almost all of them. So, for example, when you use your bicep to do an arm curl, you're curling a dumbbell – you know the muscle, primarily the bicep, I think also somewhat the muscle in your forearm, is exerting the effort. The load is what's in your hand, it's your your fist, and the fulcrum is the elbow joint, and of course the the bone is the lever. So I think most of the body's gross motor activity is based on the action of levers with joints as the fulcrum uh, and then but then when you start looking for other simple machines in animal bodies, you you can turn up some examples, but it suddenly gets a lot more difficult to scope things out like you could maybe make the argument that sharp teeth and fangs are a type of wedge which is technically a form of the the simple machine known as the inclined plane Mm, okay but then there are other types of uh of machines and machine parts that are pretty rare or even non-existent in nature, and the wheel is a good one of these. There there are really only a few examples that people can point to of things that might be considered freely rotating wheels and axles in biology. Uh, Sometimes people bring up uh, versions of of bacterial flagella as something that sort of operates like a wheel, sort of uh, kind of spinning like a propeller to move the bacterium. Uh, through Through a liquid medium and uh, and then the, there are also I think some possible uh, parts of animal digestive systems that may function kind of like a wheel uh, but animal body plans clearly favored the versatility of legs based on levers instead of wheels and uh, you could make a few different arguments about like why evolution overwhelmingly goes that route. You could you could say maybe it has something to do with just morphological precedents, like that uh, levers are easier to evolve from the pre-existing forms that were available for animal bodies to work on when in you know adapting through small mutations. But you could also argue that there are natural. Uh, terrain negotiation advantages to levers. You know, if you're not in a world of clean, paved surfaces, wheels can actually pretty easily get hung up on things, and you need the articulation of levers and limbs in order to, say, uh, you know, get over rugged terrain or to flip yourself back over if you fall on your back.
1: I think it's also telling that when we look to the world of mythological creatures and beings— we don't see a lot of wheels, or at least we don't see a lot of wheels that are innately organic. And then if we do, we tend not to see a creature or a being that is supposed to be of this world. Um, and uh, and perhaps there's some exception to this rule that I'm overlooking, but uh, I, I thought I might bring up a couple of examples. Uh, one, and I know I've mentioned this this critter, on the uh, the show before, there is a, a demon uh, by the name of, of Buer, I believe it is, B-U-E-R, mm-hmm. uh, described in Johann Weyer's 1563 Grimoire, Pseudo-Monarchia Demonium. Um, this, it covers a number of different uh, of uh, supposed demons, and this demon, Buer, is the great president of hell, kind of a goblin-faced lion with Kind of a wheel of five legs going around it, which I find reminiscent of the pedrail wheel, uh, which I mentioned in a previous artifact episode, an experimental tank wheel that had legs on it. Um, So as the wheel turns, the legs are are placed down onto the ground. Uh, In this case, they are goat legs. And I've I've read that they're supposed to symbolize the demon's ability to move in any direction, so I'm not entirely sure that we're even supposed to imagine this creature turning like a wheel or -hmm. like a clock or something, but when I look at him, that's all I can see. Like, he basically moves on the page or on the screen when Mm -hmm. I stare at him, and I can imagine him kind of lumping
0: along, you know? Well, I I tend to think about um, when wheels are imagined in the imagery of mythology and religion— it's often to say something about the fact that the vision is boggling the mind it mm-hmm. you know that it's transcending familiar forms and just completely awing you and humbling you with confusion uh so i i think for example about uh, Ezekiel's vision of the wheels yeah. in 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 the Hebrew Bible and and how the wheels there uh it seems to me at least i mean i'm you know no professional exegete on that but uh it seems like that they, they symbolize something about uh A concept that sort of like surpasses human understanding. You're looking at something that your mind can't even fit around.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can easily Im- imagine the various connotations that are being drawn in there when you have a wheel, like, appearing in the sky, because you have the idea of technology, something created by rational beings. You have the idea of sort of cosmic wheels and circular forms related to uh, the movements of the stars and the the planets and so forth. Uh, and then the idea, too, that if if this is mixed with some sort of biological or faintly biological or hybrid form, that that is, again, something that is not reflected in nature. It is something, there is something inherently unnatural about this this hybrid being that is not even just part animal and part human or part this animal and part that animal, but part flesh being and part cosmic or technological entity.
0: Now then again in nature and biology you do find all kinds of round mechanisms and round bodies and even rolling mm-hmm. forms you know lots of animals can roll up into a round shape and then roll their whole body what you what really seems to be unusual in nature and again maybe you can only find a few examples here and there that would seem to fit this is a freely rotating wheel that somehow transfers energy within a broader context. So like the the wheel and axle on a car that moves the car body, the car, you know, the chassis is stationary and then the wheel turns to propel it forward. That's what you really don't find much of in nature. But if you're content with just like something round that rolls, you can have a wheel spider rolling down a dune. You can have bugs <laughs> that roll up into round shapes and roll all over the place. Even some mammals do that.
1: Yeah, there are some examples of, of creatures that that form uh, rolling shapes. It, 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 granted, if the topography is correct, uh, there's also, of course, the, na- the, the example of goat poop uh, I've seen brought up. Granted, goat poop is not itself alive, but it is the product of, uh, of a biological organism. And the idea here is that the goat poop is nice and round so that it can roll away and hide itself uh, in these kind of environments, but uh, I, I advocate for goat poop personhood okay <laughs> um, but uh, but of course, one of the things about any of these rolling creatures is of course if it 's going to roll it's everything 's going to roll there 's not going to be a stationary part of the rolling creature as in in the same way that say there would be the the cart portion of an ox cart would remain the same, uh, but when we look to some of our supernatural models, we do see things that work like this. Of course, in a very supernatural form. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, wheel creature in um, in Japanese traditions. There's a yokai known as Wan Yudo, the Fire Wheel, and he's uh, he's a pretty famous yokai. You've you've probably seen images of him, especially if you partake of various like anime. Um, Uh, products because uh, he pops up in a lot of things. I think he pops up in some video games as well. He looks like a grumpy giant human head sort of haloed by a burning, smoking ghost wheel. And we get the impression that the wheel is moving and the head is remaining stationary. He's said to guard the, the gates of hell. And I've also read that in Life... He's said to have been a cruel ruler who burned people on the wheel. So this is kind of his punishment. He haunts the, the roads at night. Uh, he may drag souls back to hell. And there's also a female variation
0: uh, called Catawag Uruma. Okay, so this would seem to be more like that mechanism you don't really find in nature if the head stays stationary while the wheel turns around it.
1: Right. And of course, in this too, we have just a, it, it's not even pretending to be an entirely organic creature. It is this supernatural uh, combination of uh, two or three different things. Um, uh, but yeah, this is a pretty popular figure. Uh, the Power Rangers have even fought him on occasion. Um, <laughs> shows up in various anime titles and I have to say sometimes he looks a little bit like Dr. Robotnik from the Sonic games. Oh. So I wonder if Dr. Robotnik was at all inspired by this yokai, you know, a grumpy-faced man-machine with kind of a spherical design cuz Dr. Robotnik is he's the Eggman, you know, so he's often in some kind of little like little
0: circular pod. Why do I want to say that the, uh, the, the Dr. Robotnik was supposed to be based on the appearance of Theodore Roosevelt? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> he does
1: look like Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. So that might be it instead. I don't know. I, I, couldn't, I, I briefly looked around. I couldn't find anything that connected Dr. Robotnik. There's not a lot of scholarship on Dr. Robotnik, it seems, uh, unless I'm missing it. And if I am missing it, please send it to me. I want to read your, uh, your, uh, your thesis. Okay, our new podcast is an oral
0: history of Doctor Robotnik. <laughs>
1: um, now, there's a there's you throw, another you throw
0: some I am the Walrus and some Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> into a blender, and then there you go. Oh
1: yeah, there's definitely a. It seems like there's definitely a Beatles connection there as well. Yeah. Now. Um, I was, I was reading about this t- particular yokai, and there's one more little story I ran across that I have to share. This was uh, f- I found this on dot yokai.com has a profile of Wanyudo and shares a brief story that I haven't found anywhere else, but it's, it's too good not to share, and I'm probably just missing accounts of it elsewhere, uh, but quoting this website. One famous story from Kyoto tells of a woman who peeked out her window at Wanyudo as he passed through town— the demon snarled at her, saying, Instead of looking at me, have a look at your own child. She looked back at her baby, who was screaming on the floor in a pool of blood. Both of its legs had been completely torn from its body. When she looked back out at Winudo, that child's legs were in its mouth, being eaten by the mad, grinning monster.
0: What? <laughs> <laughs> so did he teleport the ch- I don't,
1: okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. He's eating those baby legs. He's a bad dude. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. So anyway, I'll stop there with my wheel creatures. But um, suffice to say, just, just bringing these up to drive home the fact that, that I think we, we have long not expected to find wheels and gears in the natural world. They are things of our creation. We are the people of the wheel.
0: Well, especially the gear. So that that was my original idea for the episode, was to focus on the idea of uh, uh, artificial gears versus possible examples of gears in nature. And while you can make arguments for a few examples of wheels in nature, the gear is really a a different kind of story, except for this one really cool example that we're going to be looking at today. So what is a gear? Well, you've seen gears before, but to actually define the concept, what counts as a gear, I think, you, I think you could say a gear is a set of rotating machine parts with interlocking teeth. So these can often take the form of a kind of uh, flat circular plate, uh, but they can also take the form of, say, like a long shaft that has teeth on the shaft, or they can even be non-circular. There are uh, more kind of square-shaped gears and gears of all different kinds of shapes and sizes. But what's common to all of them is that they have teeth that interlock with each other and they use those teeth and rotation to transfer force, rotational force known as torque. So they can transfer torque from one place to another and they can also sometimes transform that force in some way as it is transferred. So gears can change the direction of rotational force, like if you picture two interlocking wheel-shaped gears you rotate one of them clockwise, it'll actually rotate the other one counterclockwise. So that'll that'll perform one kind of change. Or you can change the orientation of the torque by having the gears interlock at an angle. Uh, so think of, for example, how if you imagine a car that has the engine sending its rotational force, its torque through a, uh, a drive shaft that runs along the length of the car, then that energy has to be transferred to the wheels to get them rotating in the direction that's parallel to the car's motion. So there are uh, gears that interlock at angles there to transfer that force eventually to the wheels. But gears can also be used to gain mechanical advantage or change the speed of a rotational force in a mathematically predictable way. So, for example, if you use a bigger gear with more teeth to spin a smaller gear with fewer teeth, the smaller gear will spin faster than the larger one, and the change in speed will be proportional to the ratio of the tooth counts between the two differently sized gears. In other words... If you use a gear to drive a second gear with half as many teeth as the first gear, it will spin exactly twice as fast.
1: To a certain extent, it almost feels like like wheel wizardry, uh, because yeah. the wheel is doing its thing, and and, to, and if you're not going to do anything else, you can okay, you can do various uh, tasks and carry out various uh, acts by interacting with that wheel on its terms. But by the use of gears, you can transform it. You can, you can make the gear uh, uh, work in other ways. Um, uh, and I, th- I think that's, that's one of the fascinating things when we're, when we're talking about sort of that leap from, from wheel to gear. And of course, and this could be just as simple as, well, I don't want horizontal uh, rotation. I want vertical rotation, that sort of thing.
0: Right. But it can also, uh, this last thing I mentioned about the predictable mathematical relationships between the intervals of rotation of toothed gears, the, the fact that toothed gears are quantized, right, that you can like put a number to the number of teeth on a rotation that allows you to tightly control the ratios, you know, how mm-hmm. fast one spins in relationship to another one. That actually has made gears useful not just for say applying force to things like you know powering a machine or something, but also for tasks related to more abstract types of work like measurement, such as measuring intervals of time, um, and not just in straightforward timekeeping devices like clocks. Though of course gears are very important in in um, analog clocks, but. Even more complex applications, like we see in one of the most intriguing artifacts from the ancient world, known as the Antikythera mechanism, which is widely considered the first known computer. Not a digital computer, but an analog computer, a computer that uses gears instead of semiconductors for information processing. Uh, The Antikythera mechanism was discovered in a Roman-era shipwreck in the Mediterranean around the year 1900, Uh, and this shipwreck traced back to a ship that sank probably in the 1st century CE. Rob, I've got an image for you to look at here that shows the actual remains of the mechanism alongside a modern reconstruction that was uh, sort of reverse-engineered and built by some experts who had studied this machine, the mechanism is now understood to have been an ancient mechanical orrery. An orrery is a is a working uh, model of the movement of heavenly bodies, and this one would have been powered by a hand crank that operated gears. And this orrery would allow you to calculate the relative positions of heavenly bodies like the moon and the sun as they traveled through the Zodiac out to specific future dates. Uh, And I think it may, it may also have tracked planetary motion as well, but that's less certain. I think that's a hypothetical mechanism that may have been present, but may have been lost.
1: When I look at it, I'm instantly reminded of those, uh, those gear devices you find at museums and zoos uh, where you can squash a penny and make it into a collector's token. (laughs) which um which I have to say as as a parent i, I have, I've long realized that children are drawn to these like like mm-hmm. flies uh, to to meet they um, they have to turn the crank, uh, they have to watch those gears operate um, and, uh, and and now that we've actually discussed gears a bit on the show, I used to be, I was, I've was i long been very annoyed by it. Like, oh, come on, don't mess with that. We're here to look at something else and you're just going to turn this gear on this machine that I'm not going to give you 50 cents and a penny for because it's it's a dumb invention. But at the same time, they're interacting with the gears. They're getting to see the gears in motion and see some of that energy transference that we're talking about.
0: Oh well, I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful way, actually. I think to educate kids about mechanical advantage, about yeah. like what machines can do, because the, the kid they know that they wouldn't have enough strength to smash a penny flat with their hands alone, but with their hands by operating a a, a crank in in mm-hmm. a machine that has no external power source, it's just the power of their arm, but through the mechanical advantage created by this crank, the lever, the gears, they can smash a penny. That that's kind of that's that's empowering. Not there, there's a wizardry to that too yeah behold the power of the gear uh, but anyway back to the uh, the Antikythera mechanism so it was able to predict the uh, the future movements of heavenly bodies like the sun and the moon and also I think predict eclipses uh, and it managed the different time ratios between these these moving objects in the heavens by the use of gear ratios gear ratios to calculate the intervals of these movements. So in a way, this was a calculator. The, the the different ratios between the number of teeth on the gears were doing math for you. Now, we know in the modern world, gears are useful in all kinds of machines. You find them everywhere. They're in clocks, they're in cars, they're in fluid pumps, they're in mills and factory machines... Uh, but but you you might wonder, okay, well, where did they first appear in the technological space? Because you wouldn't necessarily expect to have found a computer for astronomical phenomena in the first century CE, but here it is, and probably actually it's even older than that. I think it's believed to have been… Uh, I don't know, maybe at least 100 years old at the time it was uh, lost in the shipwreck. So so clearly, that that's taking gear math way, way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was trying to find some good sources on the ancient history of gears. I didn't come across anything that was super recent. So there may be discoveries since these sources I turned up, but um, – One that was interesting to me uh, because it was by Derek John DeSala-Price, who is a British physicist and historian of science, who was one of the investigators who worked on the Antikythera mechanism. Uh, He did a chapter that was in a book put out by the U.S. National Museum Bulletin in 1959 called On the Origin of Clockwork, Perpetual Motion Devices and the Compass – And in a short section on the earliest known examples of gears and geared mechanisms, he writes that the earliest evidence for the knowledge of toothed gears um, probably goes back at least as far as the Greek mathematician and and inventor Archimedes, who showed clear knowledge of, of toothed gears. And he lived in the 3rd century BCE. But he also cites uh, artifacts from ancient China that may indicate knowledge of uh, of gears even farther back than that. He writes, quote, in China, actual examples of wheels and molds for wheels dating back from the 4th century B.C. have been preserved. One of the interesting things he mentions about some of these earliest examples of, uh, of gears in the archaeological record Uh, He says, quote, a remarkable feature in these early gears is the use of ratchet-shaped teeth, sometimes even twisted helically, so that the gears resemble worms intermeshing on parallel axles.
1: Hmm.
0: But then he also calls attention to the fact that throughout much of history – Uh, You know, definitely before the Industrial Revolution, a big use of a lot of uh, a major use for gears in the technological space was in mills, in windmills and water mills using large gears as a way of transferring force, uh, often at a right angle to how these natural forces like the flow of water or the flow of wind were were moving the the primary uh, turbine.
1: Yeah, or likewise to um, transition from say a horizontal paddle wheel into a vertical millstone, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Now another paper that uh, that you uh, you turned up on this comes to us from M.J.T. Lewis, Gearing in the Ancient World, published in Endeavour seventy seventeen number three from nineteen ninety three. Um, and I was reading through this one. This was pretty interesting. I'm uh, going to be some slight retreading. Uh, of, of what we've already discussed, but basically, ac- according to this this paper, we can trace the technology of of the gear to ancient Greeks of the third century BCE. Which uh, also, uh, according to, um, uh, to Fagan et al. in uh, The Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World, uh, you know, this is, this is um, also the time and place where we see, at least according to ancient Greek and Latin technical authors, the birth of water-powered milling, mm-hmm. uh, a technology that, of course, would be highly effective. But uh, according to to uh, to Lewis here in Alexandria, the Greek kings of Egypt at the time, the Ptolemies, they set up a research center called the Museum. Uh, I think we've talked about the Museum in the past, right? Perhaps even in our yeah. episode, "The Invention of the Museum," <laughs> uh, about the sort of the original usage of this word.
0: That sounds familiar, yeah.
1: Yeah. So basically, various technological innovations were said to have emerged from this this sort of lab, this kind of technological think tank and uh, laboratory. Uh, and according to such writers as Hero, uh, Vitruvius, and Philo of Byzantium, they all point to the work of um, Tisibius, who would have lived 285 through 222 BCE. None of his actual writings survived, but he's said to have written uh, you know, various works on compressed air and hydraulics. And Hero, uh, Vitruvius, and Philo would all go on to write at length on these various machines and and, and devices, uh, various gear arrangements, Uh, other great minds of that age and region such as uh, Archimedes uh, would also expand on these ideas as well. Now, Lewis explains that we ultimately don't know where and when the earliest gears pop up in human history. Uh, Toothed gears, he writes, already existed in the form of ratchet wheels that were used to hold a windlass against a load, and these might date back to Greek crane innovations from around 515 BCE. Um, he He also points out that a bronze example of this has been uh, found from about a century later, and this might have been used for hauling ships up a slipway after this point. Ratchets were widely used on catapults as a way of holding back all that potential firing energy um, uh, But he writes quote, "But the first toothed wheel for transmitting motion may have been a sprocket wheel driving a chain. This is attested." By two machines described by Philo, one is a chain of buckets powered by a water wheel; the other is a repeater catapult built in Rhodes by a certain Dionysius of Alexandria, who cannot be precisely identified, uh, but may have well worked uh, before 282 BCE. Hmm. So, the Greeks and the Romans obviously applied the subsequent technology to a number of tasks, but but Lewis raises the question, did they invent all of this themselves, or did they borrow or pick up on the ideas of others? And he writes that one possibility would be that they somehow got these ideas from China. In fact, he, he writes that this would be seemingly the only other alternative. Uh, however, one of the, the, the limiting factors here is that accounts of the gear in China largely come later from the first century CE. Uh, but he writes, quote, the only uh, earlier examples in China so far recorded, and I, I do want to stress this was like 1993, mm-hmm. um, are a number of very small bronze gears and ratchets found in tombs and dating from around 200 BCE to 50 CE. They include extraordinarily what look like chevron or double helical gear wheels of tiny size. All seem too small and too early to to belong, as has been suggested, to windlasses for drawing crossbows, and we have no idea what they were for.
0: Mm, a gear
1: mystery, yeah, and I include uh, f- uh, images of these uh, these mysterious gears below. Uh, so, yeah, I, I haven't haven't had a lot of time to to investigate further to see if any additional scholarship has emerged on these little gears and what they might have been used for. Um, and and I don't know if if ultimately there are stronger arguments that have been f- put forth regarding their use or possible use in crossbow technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's fascinating.
0: Oh, one of these pictures you attach, I wonder if this is what uh, uh, Derek J. DeSala-Price was referring to when talking about ratchet-shaped teeth mm-hmm. that are uh, twisted helically so that they look like worms intermeshing on parallel axles. The, I can see at least one of the uh, images you include from the Chinese example could could be what he's talking about there.
1: Yeah, that's where my mind went when you read that that bit, having, having looked at these examples. Yeah, it has kind of a worm-like quality to it. Um, now, ultimately, Lewis in his writings he contends that gearing was either invented independently in China and in the Greek world, or that it was actually transmitted from the West to the East rather than uh, vice versa. But, um, uh, but, but, like I say, there, there may be additional scholarship that we just haven't um, uh, come across yet regarding this. But it does raise the question: You know, what kind of gears would one be entombed with? You know, what mm-hmm. what bit of technology would it make sense uh, to 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 go to the grave with i mean certainly a a very nice crossbow seems like the sort of thing you might bring with you um i don't know if it would make sense for there to be some sort of like purely novelty gear device like something that was more of a curio
0: that maybe wasn't fully utilized or you know some or an analog model. computer yeah,
1: yeah yeah could be
0: i guess if your journey in the afterlife really depends on knowing when an eclipse is coming yeah i wonder yeah, yeah, and then of course, but then of course, just interlocking gears and
1: turning things are just are interesting. They 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 make us think about uh, about motion and uh, interlocking energies. So I don't know. It seems like there there are a few different directions it could go in that I could I could imagine somebody saying uh, that is something I, I want to be buried. With.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
2: in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Now, I want to come back to the concept of uh, gears in biology because uh, for a long time while there was probably no known example of a working gear in the, uh, in the biological world, there have been observations before of animals having appendages that certainly look like toothed gears. And my favorite uh, uh, instance I came across here is a creature called the wheel bug or Aralus cristatus. This is a type of predatory assassin bug that preys on all kinds of insects, including aphids, caterpillars, beetles, and bees. I found some very gnarly-looking images of of uh, caterpillar mutilation.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think I'd really seen this uh, species before, or uh, these creatures before. Uh, but yeah, they're quite uh, cool-looking. It kind of looks like it has some sort of a gear emerging from its back. Also, it, it reminds me of a buzzsaw or perhaps... To some degree of something like a stegosaurus or or a, or a, a dimetrodon or something.
0: Yeah, so it's called the wheel bug, but I think maybe a better name would be the gear bug because it really mm-hmm. does look like it's it's got this toothed gear poking up out of the uh, the the back of its carapace, right, sort of behind where the head is up on the thorax. And so I was reading about this insect on the uh, University of Florida Department of Entomology's website. They've got a good profile on it there. And they say in adulthood, this insect tends to measure about one to one and a quarter inches long. And then, quote, this assassin bug is a dark, robust creature with long legs and antennae, a stout beak, large eyes on a slim head and a prominent thoracic semicircular crest that resembles a cogwheel or a chicken's comb. This is the only insect species in the United States with such a crest. The number of teeth or tubercles in the crest varies from 8 to 12. Now, immediately, you're you're probably wondering, as I was, what does it do? What, What does the gear on its back do? I could not find any solid research uh, uh, alluding to a purpose of this cogwheel crest that there may be something out there that I couldn't come across, or it may just be unknown. I think it's more likely unknown at this point what this gear crest is for. In which case, barring other knowledge, I guess you might assume that its purpose might have something to do with appearance rather than any mechanical function. Maybe it plays a visual role in interactions with predators or prey or mates, or maybe it's defensive somehow. It's hard to tell. Um, but apparently another interesting fact is that the wheel is absent in juveniles. So if you look at nymphs of this assassin bug, they don't have it. It only appears Hmm. in adults after the insects final molting. So once it reaches its ultimate form, then it's got the gear. But whatever it's for it does not appear to be a functional gear it just looks like one I mean for one thing it can't rotate and there's nothing really that it could clearly be rotating against locking its teeth with it's just a a crest that kind of looks like a gear or like a like a chicken's comb now, as amazing as these insects look, uh, one thing I should probably note is that you don't want to try to handle it because apparently wheelbugs can produce an extremely painful bite that uh, mm. that lingers for days. Uh, but but anyway, this animal is worth looking up. There are actually a few other interesting things about them. Uh, for one thing, they do appear to practice some amount of sexual cannibalism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, also, they uh, there is another mystery about them where they produce a vocalization. I think they create a chirping sound by a certain type of a a friction mechanism where they they rub one part of their body on another. I think maybe they're rubbing some, uh, either their beak or forelegs, I think it was the beak on on a part on the underside of their carapace, and it creates this chirping, and, and scientists, as far as I could tell, don't know what this is for yet. But coming back to the idea of an actual mechanically functional gear in biology, As of a study published in the year 2013 in the journal Science, there actually is at least one known animal that does contain working toothed gears within its body. And as far as I could tell, this is also still the only animal that has this feature that's known. And this animal is a type of plant hopper insect known as Issus coleoptratus. The paper that reported the discovery of this animal gear was, uh, like I said, published in Science in 2013 by authors Malcolm Burroughs and Gregory Sutton, who both uh, at the time worked in the biological sciences at Cambridge University. And it was called Interacting Gears, Synchronized Propulsive Leg Movements in a Jumping Insect. Now, Rob, I've got some images that you can uh, that you can look at here while I'm talking about this, uh, there's some really interesting electron micrographs of, uh, of these, these gear pieces. They, they truly don't really look animal, right? You know, they, they do look like a machine. And I always love that when you like zoom way in on the parts of an insect or something, and you get that HR Giger space where you can't tell if what you're looking at is, is natural or artificial.
1: Yeah. Because there's one image here of, uh, I believe a nymph um, of, of this, uh, of this species. And, you know, it's it's cute, but it doesn't really look like anything other than some sort of a fly or insect. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when you start looking at these uh, these electron microscope images, yeah, then then it takes on this biomechanical kind of reality. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite unlike anything else I've seen.
0: So what is this animal, the, the Isis coleopterus? Well, this is an insect that is, uh, again, known as a plant hopper. I think you'll normally find them crawling around on bits of ivy in Europe and North Africa. And so they're, they're very, very small. They're usually just about three millimeters long at maturity. Um, and so they'll go around grazing on ivy leaves. And the discovery that's announced in this report is that the juveniles of this species, so not the adults, but the nymphs, the juveniles, they have these interlocking gear teeth on their back legs, which allow them to rotate their legs in perfect synchronization when they are setting up a jump. So these tiny insects uh, have have their main defense against predators, and it's not clear exactly what predator this is most adapted against, so I don't know if this would be you know, against the possibility of being eaten by a large mammal that's grazing on foliage or being pounced on by a parasitic wasp or some other kind of uh, smaller insect predator or spider or something. That's not quite known for sure, but, but there, it is probably some kind of survival defensive adaptation that this creature needs to be able to jump far and jump fast. And they are one of the most amazing jumpers in all of nature. I was watching an interview with one of the authors of the study, Malcolm Burroughs, in which he, he talks about the jumping mechanism. And uh, so the Issus insect will take off at a, at a jump of about five meters per second or uh, more than eight miles per hour, which for a tiny insect like this is pretty fast. It accelerates to its jumping speed in less than a millisecond. Uh, and so the uh, the way Burroughs explained this is that this insect experiences absolutely in unfathomable G forces as it takes off because it's acceleration is so fast. Uh, He puts it at 500 or even 700 Gs, which if you look at uh, the amount of Gs that humans are able to tolerate, it's like uh, the amount you can tolerate is a factor of how long you are subjected to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, usually for humans, the, uh, the, the acceleration we can tolerate in Gs, the maximum is like a factor of a few tens, you know, so, but this Mm -hmm. would be hundreds. Wow. Yeah, this is impressive. So this insect has this amazingly fast, amazingly powerful jump that can just catapult. It's like it's shooting itself out of a cannon using the power of its two hind legs. And what was documented in this paper by, by Burroughs and Sutton is that they, uh, they captured imagery of Gear mechanisms on the hind legs interlocking using electron microscopy and high speed video recording. Uh, And and again, the purpose that they found is that these uh, interlocking gear teeth are useful for synchronizing the motion of the legs. Now, why would synchronization of the leg movement be so important that it would have its own evolved mechanism, which is, as far as we know, unique in the animal kingdom? Well, apparently it's because coordination of the timing on the two legs is necessary for this incredibly powerful sort of cannon shot jump to be effective. Uh, So I I was reading about this in uh, one of the press releases about uh, about the study, and what the authors here found is that A lack of synchronization between the legs at launch could cause an uncontrolled, what they call, yaw rotation. So if you, if you picture an airplane, you know, you've got the different, uh, the the different ways that you can change the motion of the airplane. You've got pitch, roll, and yaw. So pitch would be tipping the nose of the airplane up or down. Uh, roll would be raising, that would be rolling the airplane, you know, raising the wings, uh, relative to each other. And then yaw is twisting side to side. If you can imagine an insect that's sort of catapulting itself in this spectacular jump with two, with pushing off with the two hind legs at the same time, if one leg pushes off faster than the other one, you can imagine that it's going to send the insect sort of twisting out of control in its path. Which obviously interferes with landing where it's trying to land. Mm -hmm. Now, one question would be, why the need for a mechanical gear for synchronization? Why does this need to be on the insect's exoskeleton? Why wouldn't the insect just synchronize the action of its legs through the nervous system like pretty much any other animal would, right? Like, if you are jumping... You are able to synchronize the motion of your legs through neural mechanisms with your brain and your nervous system sort of trying to control them through normal motor function and then getting feedback from the feelings of your legs from like your proprioception and and stuff and, and tactile sensations to to try to time the jump together and correct for any imbalances in real time. Well, apparently the insect can't do that because the problem is its jump is too fast to synchronize through the nervous system. The acceleration uh, leading into the jump happens so quickly that the nervous system cannot do real-time feedback to coordinate it. So it needs this mechanical lock on the legs themselves to make sure synchronization is happening because the insect's nervous system can't talk to itself fast enough to make sure that that the jump is on target. In their their press release, uh, author Malcolm Burroughs summarized it like this, The precise synchronization would be impossible to achieve through a nervous system as neural impulses would take far too long for the extraordinarily tight coordination required. By developing mechanical gears, the ISS can just send nerve signals to its muscles to produce roughly the same amount of force. Then, if one leg starts to propel the jump, the gears will interlock, creating absolute synchronicity. In Isis, the skeleton is used to solve a complex problem that the brain and nervous system can't. This emphasizes the importance of considering the properties of the skeleton in how movement is produced. And this was really interesting to me because it also comes back to, you could maybe even consider this, a a case of uh sort of uh supplementing the cognitive abilities of the nervous system a sort of embodied cognition allowing the body to do math for you that your brain and nervous system can't handle
1: yeah because essentially it's a it's, it's a physical way of solving a problem that is be beyond cognitive ability yeah um and, and and really, when we're talking about the G-forces pulled here, I mean, like, this is beyond space flight. So, when we talk about, like, humans have not evolved to travel in space or to deal with certain <laughs> speeds or or physical realities, like, this is a case here where, I mean, this, this creature is, is essentially engaging in those kinds of speeds, those kinds of rapid accelerations. Uh, so, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to think about here.
0: Yeah, the body moves too fast for the nervous system to make sense of, so it just offloads that that computation that the motor parts of the nervous system might do naturally offloads that onto the skeleton now the exoskeleton of the insect is doing the math for you kind of like a a, an analog computer would like the antikythera mechanism wow wow so uh to take a slightly closer look at these teeth at the gears on the hind legs they're located on the backs of the the strong hind legs that the Isis insect uses to jump um they're on the parts of the legs known as the uh trochantera and so actually a human skeleton has trochantera too they're they're sort of on the upper part of the femur near where the femur would uh would connect to the pelvis and uh, these, these insects uh, tend to have somewhere between 10 to 12 teeth on their gears, but uh, while it seems to vary between the insects, the insect always has the same amount of teeth on each side within itself. Each tooth is about 80 micrometers wide, so 80 millionths of a meter And there are some interesting engineered features of of these gear teeth within the the body that have been created by the evolutionary process that gives rise to them here. The teeth have rounded corners at the point of contact, and this is useful apparently because it would help prevent the gears from being sheared off or broken off if there is a slight misalignment during a jump. Mm. And then another interesting thing about them is that they are differently shaped than most gears we use in the technological world because usually uh, gears made by humans tend to have symmetrical teeth, right? You know, they're just sort of curved straight out from the, uh, the gear strip surface. But uh, in these, the teeth are not quite symmetrical. They're sort of angled out, and it's because this gear only needs to work one way. Mm. So, like after the launch is done, the gear teeth can just separate from each other, and they don't need to roll backwards in in the direction opposite from which they came. It's a one way gear.
1: Yeah, and you definitely get that from looking at the image. It, it feels like some sort of a biomechanical, um, you know, firing mechanism.
0: Right, a firing mechanism is a is a good way to compare it because again it doesn't go both ways and it doesn't need to roll all the way around it's just sort of a strip of interlocking teeth that doesn't complete a full circle and it only and it only rolls one way only on launch
1: yeah like it kind of looks like if hr giger designed a flintlock uh pistol you (laughs) know or yeah or maybe if uh, david cronenberg did you know
0: yeah oh but so there was a really interesting thing about this research the question of how did they figure out that these gear teeth locked for synchronization while launching the jump, right? Like, how did how mm-hmm. they observe that? Uh, well, apparently the authors here used a a dead insect. They used an Isis insect corpse. And what they did was they, they uh, took the dead insects legs and rotated them back into the jump launching position and then the researchers used an electrical stimulus to cause a contraction in the jumping muscle of only one of the legs okay so they they stimulate only one leg as if it has been told by the brain to jump but because the gear teeth were locked when the legs were in jump readying position The insect's legs both performed the launching motion, even the dead leg on the other side that had not been electrically stimulated, and Hmm. the insect leapt straight forward. So you could stimulate only one of the two legs, kind of like how an airplane can fly with only one engine. you You only need to stimulate one of the legs, and the gears keep both legs locked in sync. Now, there's another interesting question here. Why only the juveniles? I I think I already mentioned that the adult uh, issus insects don't have these interlocking gear teeth. They've got a feature that's more common, more like what you'd see in a lot of other jumping insects, which is not gear teeth, but just sort of um, bumps or friction pads. So their back legs might touch each other. And, and the touching there helps keep the, uh, the jump synchronized, but they don't actually have interlocking teeth. It's more just kind of like, uh, pushing two surfaces together that grip each other pretty well. In another study uh, uh, by Burroughs, he noted that this is achieved by, quote, mechanical actions between small protrusions from each trochantera, which fluoresce bright blue under specific wavelengths of ultraviolet light and which touch at the midline when the legs are cocked before a jump. So the adults are touching parts of their back legs together to help synchronize a jump, but they don't have gear teeth. And the hypothesized explanation for the difference here is that Isis insects go through periods of molting as they grow, right? So an insect, as it gets bigger and bigger, it will shed its old hard exoskeleton, and then it will grow bigger and allow a new exoskeleton to harden. But the adult exoskeleton at full maturity, it lacks these interlocking gear teeth. And the idea is maybe the adults don't have the teeth because if the teeth on the jumping mechanism were to break or get sheared off by by error, this would sort of break their ability to jump. And so once the adult is in full molted form and it's not going to shed its exoskeleton again, it needs to have a less fragile mechanism. But the younger's, the younger ones, the juveniles, because they will go through multiple moltings and can grow new gear teeth if their old gear teeth break, they pay less of a price for having this somewhat fragile mechanism.
1: Uh, okay, so here we see sort of... in, in- in their early stages, the advantages of having an, uh, an exoskeleton, and then in in later life, the disadvantages of having an exoskeleton—in that you are not going to get another one,
0: right? And so, when you're not going to get another one, it makes more sense for evolution to supply you with more durable mechanisms that mm. that aren't going to possibly like kill you if if they break,
1: right? There, there would be a survival advantage. In having a a jumping mechanism that's not going to—it's not going to be like uh, Boba Fett's um, uh, jetpack firing off at a weird angle and sending you into the the Sarlacc,
0: right? But that's just a hypothesized explanation for the difference between the juveniles and adults. Ultimately, we don't know for sure there. And as far as I can tell, this is still the only known toothed gear in the animal kingdom. Uh, There may have been something since then that I wasn't able to track down, but it looks like this is still the only one.
1: Yeah, well, this is fascinating. Yeah, be, it kind of brings me back to the, the the biomimetics question earlier. You know, um, in evolution, solving particular engineering problems over time, and this is an example where the the engineering problem is extreme enough that uh, and the and the circumstances of its of uh, its lifespan enable this sort of answer to evolve and take place. Yeah,
0: yeah. Can you imagine if you had gear teeth on your inner thighs that helped you jump? <laughs> Seems um, uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd have to have an exoskeleton, too, for this I to take so. place. Or, yeah, I'd have to have some other kind of weird arrangement, like it would have to be bone spurs or teeth that grow back, I guess. Because that would, again, you'd have to have the situation of what, what do you do about the wear and tear of this, the, the, the physical mechanics here.
0: I mean, it doesn't really make sense for our bodies because that wouldn't, that wouldn't be how we jump anyway. Our legs right. would need to work differently for that to make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. So again, we come down to a, a very specific evolved answer to a specific
0: problem uh, that yeah, you're just not going to see in,
1: in in other organisms.
0: But I am still enamored of the idea that, in a way, th- these these gear teeth on the insect's legs are a kind of computer. They're mm-hmm. doing a kind of mathematical processing for the animal. This is the this is the computer of the thighs.
1: Yeah, and and also it's interesting too that no matter how no matter how much uh, you know humanity clung to the wheel and to gears and, and saw this as their technological achievement, uh, here we have an example of evolution once more beating humanity to the punch yeah. uh, so well before the the Greeks of Alexandria were devising their uh, their gear com- uh, you know complexities, uh, this creature already had the gears uh, right there in its thighs.
0: These gears are hopping yeah <laughs> uh,
1: well, this was fun. I enjoyed talking about uh, Everything from, uh, we had a little bit of an invention episode uh, uh, in here. We had some biology. We had a little bit of uh, uh, mythology and folklore. So uh, it would be interesting to come back to this. I know we talked about potentially covering screws and screws in nature in this episode, but perhaps that would make for its own future episode.
0: Oh, yeah. There are actually a few things in nature that you could
1: argue are screws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and and of course, the invention of the screw and uh, uh, and so forth is also quite interesting. All right. We're going to go and close it up then, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Um, Certainly reach out to us. Get in touch with us. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, core episodes published in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sandwich between them. We have an artifact episode, or for the months of September and October anyway, it's going to be the Monster Fact. Uh, it's gonna, we're going to take on more of a, a monstrous form uh, for the holidays here, and then it will likely revert back to the artifact. We have listener mail on Mondays. We have a little Weird House Cinema on Fridays. That's our time just to discuss a weird film, and then we have a rerun
0: over the weekend. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.
2: Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. at work